2: Well, hello. Thank you for downloading. This is the Times Redbox podcast. I'm Luke Jones, again, informaturally, what with it being Easter and everything else. Um, He's away on holiday. In fact, I saw a picture of him on Instagram the other day, um, literally on the beach with his top off, um, drinking a drink out of an actual pineapple. So he's having fun. We're having more fun here. Uh, We're going to be discussing this new film, Navalny, uh, in a moment. An incredible film where they followed Alexei Navalny from after when he was poisoned, to getting better and discovering who from the Russian government actually poisoned him. So we'll hear from uh, the director of that film and also we'll hear from somebody who studies uh, how the FSB and the sort of uh, shadowy areas of the Russian government actually operate and how that's changing with the Ukrainian war. First, let's get to our columnists, James Forsyth and Melanie Reid. Well, I want to start with the, with the situation facing the Prime Minister, because, James, in your column this morning, um, you, you're suggesting that actually at the moment things are, are somewhat out of his hands. Yeah, because
3: I, th- I think essentially what his future turns on is whether the economy picks up or not. Because, you know, you can do things like he did yesterday with the, the Rwanda announcements and the like, and that they will shore up his right flank to an extent. But I don't think it is... Politics always gets very, very scratchy when people will feel that they're getting worse off month after month, their paycheck gets them less and less. And that, that's what happens with inflation, when inflation is running above uh, wage increases. Hmm. And, and that is the current situation. And I think if that carries on, I think the danger, you know, the great Tory vulnerability is this idea that, you know, there's one rule for them and one rule for everybody else. And I think the danger is the cost of living crisis could become almost the perfect encapsulation of that. You know, Cabinet ministers are, uh, are, are you know, relatively well paid, and there's a sense that you know that they are being insulated from this crisis that is hitting everybody else. Uh, I think that that could create a lot of public anger and very scratchy
2: politics. Do you agree, Melanie? Do you think that that is the thing that the Prime Minister should be should be most concerned about?
0: Yeah I I mean as as James James suggests there could be an expenses style anger ripped up again which is which is which of course we'll remember from a few years ago when uh, you know the duck houses and all the rest of it which which did so much damage to to um our just our parliamentary image mm. but I I think what's interesting about it is that when a few a few months ago when partygate was 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 rolling it was all about what just about what the Tory MPs thought, because it was then it was th- at that point it was them that could bring him down. They just needed the fifty-four letters. But now, now it's up to the people. Now we've got the people are getting involved, the voters. We've got we've got the the, the, the local by-elections coming up. We've got Wakefield, yeah. and it's it's that sense that there's an awful lot more now uh, in the country, and the country really had the decision rather than than just a few. A few head of of um, troubled Tory MPs.
2: James Melanie mentioned Wakefield. There, we were talking about that a little bit earlier on with a, a correspondent from the Yorkshire Post. How difficult a situation and test do you think that's going to be for the Prime Minister whenever that comes? <sighs> I think
3: it would be very surprising if the Tories held that seat given the circumstances in which in which the by-election has been held and I yes. think I think that that is what I think you know that is what you number 10 will try and tell nervous Tory MPs you can't read across from this situation you know it it's unique because because of the circumstances in which the the previous MP has resigned, but but I think Melanie is right about the the the, the, the impact that the public can have. You know, Tory MPs' relationship with Boris Johnson is, is fundamentally transactional. It's mm. not it's not like Margaret Thatcher. It's not a great ideological project. It is a belief that he is the person who gives them the best chance of winning. If you start to see election results that dent that sense, then he then he will become much more vulnerable.
2: And in terms of that anger, at Melanie, do you sense that it is more about? cost of living and actually just how rich or poor people are feeling in their day-to-day's lives and actually this sort of rwanda plan and the party gate fines and the rest are almost peripheral to that or do you think they all sort of mix together
0: i think there are an awful lot of things at play aren't there um i, I think the cost of living one is obviously the big one because people are going to you know there's gonna be another month on people are going to start feeling it in their in their how much is in their bank account and it it is a it really is a question then of, I mean, it, we've got six weeks until this this this, this uh, sheer, uh, you know, the this, 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 this scheme to, to start sending people abroad and they'll be to, to Rwanda and there will be lots and lots of publicity about it. But I think an awful lot of people, apart from the far right and the sort of bleeding heart liberals on the left, you've got this huge mass of people who are very... Very conflicted, uneasy, and really don't know whether they think it's a good thing or not yeah. it's a very very divisive policy uh, I, and and I think a lot will play on on how that comes out, whether it 's a success it's um yeah there's so much in the mix at the moment it, it it's it's a poker table isn't it it's yeah. a very very interesting <laughs>
2: and to continue melanie's analogy in terms of the sort of hands which will which will be dealt to the prime minister next, um James, how dangerous do you think further fines are for him and for staff around him and also the eventual final publication eventually of uh, Sue Gray and her much-lauded report?
3: I think one of the ways in which Boris Johnson's been a lucky general is that the first event he's been fined over is the event under which there is the kind of the most sympathy for among Tory MPs. You know, this was kind of, you know, in the middle of the working day. It's not some great, long, boozy affair. Uh, and I think there's a kind of sense that, you know, all these people are working to get together and so that that changes how people think about it i think it's obviously more difficult uh i don't i think british people tend not to think that things are a party unless there's alcohol involved once you move into you know if there were to be fines for events where 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 booze was consumed i think that's where people will get you know that becomes more difficult and i also think the grey report is going to be difficult because there will be this sense that you know while the rest of the country was locked down life continued not as normal in number 10 but but far more normally there than it did anywhere else because you know there were leaving dues there were you know nor the normal routines of office life continued when everyone else was being told by these same people to stay at home and i think that that that, that is obviously um dangerous for the government yeah. uh, my, my personal sense on rwanda is that what what you're going to see is a huge number of kind of both political challenges in the house of lords and legal challenges in the courts i think it'll be i think it'll be a long time before this policy ever um comes into actual existence yeah. and i think in some ways that suits uh the tories perfectly they've got an answer to this problem which previously had mm. appeared insoluble on small boats and they'll be able to say well we can't implement it because we are being blocked from doing so so people will never actually find out whether it's a practicable. Idea or not.
2: Let's move mm. on to what other matters, um, because the interesting news which broke um, yesterday lunchtime-ish is... Um what might be happening with Twitter? Um, Elon Musk putting in this um, incredible bid, uh, $43 billion to buy it. Um, Jared Baker in, in The Times, the columnist, writes about how um, Twitter occupies a, a sort of an outsized role in the minds of uh, media people and actually only a fraction of regular people um, have anything to do with it. Are, are we overplaying this, Melanie? Do, do you think uh, where Twitter is and how it's operated will actually impact public discourse much?
0: Well, you know, I'm. Re- I was reminded instantly a few months ago. Do you remember when, when Matt Chorley did did a poll to find the greatest the greatest PM we never had? Oh
2: yes, I remember it well.
0: I, do you remember that? And and, and the the out the, the winner by by a sort of uh, 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 half half a hillside was um, was Jeremy Corbyn you know which which absolutely uh, showed us how how left le- left leaning Twitter is, so I don't think it's representative, but it does have an enormous influence and I I, I I you know part of me wants to be part of me just wants to laugh at this story because you know musk is 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 in some ways so crazy and so bonkers um, but 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 it is about if you look at it if if it if it's real. Then um, it's very worrying because he's, you know, he, he wants he wants to have us all smoking smoking spliffs and, and <laughs> cannabis enthusiasts, and you know, there's this sense of libertarianism, uh, unbridled libertarianism, which you know we do need boundaries and we do need protection in life. But,
2: um, but, I was going to say, in terms of how important it is, though, James, um, Elon Musk um, has said this is not about economics. Quote. The civilizational risk is decreased the more we can increase the trust of Twitter as a public platform. Is he, again, is he massively overestimating its importance and its centrality to civilization?
3: Uh, I mean, civilization is, is a rather grand phrase. Yeah. I, I think you can't get around the fact that, on uh, both journalists and the political class more broadly, Twitter has a kind of outsized impact um and you know for news obsessives of which i suspect we are we're all guilty um you know it it, it, it is hugely important and it, it, it because because it is a weird mix of um an incredibly good source of information on certain things um but also, uh, it risks turning you into an echo chamber, and I think this is a kind of constant struggle for publications. You know, the New York Times recently said to its journalists, "You know, it's absolutely fine by us if you want to come off Twitter because we think that you know Twitter is having a distorting effect on 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 how we how how you know our journalists you know risks having a distorting effect on how our journalists see the world." Um, I think the Elon Musk thing is 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 I think Jerry Baker touched on this in his column today. It, it is a debate about you know what should this be. And obviously Elon Musk is at is at kind of one one end of this spectrum. Should mm-hmm. it be a public square, you know, speaker's corner where anyone can say anything, totally kind of unregulated free speech? Or does it have kind of the responsibilities we would normally consider for the kind of that a newspaper publisher has, you know, and should therefore be kind of moving to take down stuff that is untrue or inaccurate or misleading? And I think that this is gonna be a kind of this is going to become a big debate, which is, you know, how do you strike this balance, um, online? And I mean, there's, I mean, there's also a particular other problem. You, know, you see this with the online safety bill, actually, that, that the government is recommending, mm. which is, you know, the, the, these companies are generally stopped by people who come from the same generation and have the same kind of ideological and social outlook. How do you protect kind of, the plurality of opinion? In, in those circumstances. I mean this is I mean this is something that we're, we're all gonna have to work out how to wrestle with because the, these, these 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 platforms sit and, and they are they are neither fish nor foul. They're not a traditional newspaper. They have in, in many ways they have a lot more influence than you know than Hearst ever did. Yeah. Um, but uh, but but the, but, the, the kind of, but their strength comes from the idea that, you know, but the danger is that people only see the views of people that they they agree with. And that, you know, that always kind of seeks to kind of radicalise everyone into a belief that only their way of looking at the world is legitimate.
0: Uh, it, 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 it reminds me, just to butt in there, it reminds mm. me so much of the film Don't Look Up, um, you know, which was also nominated. Films, yeah, yeah which, was, which was about how... Uh, the madness of a of a social media obsessed um, country uh, world, uh, you know let 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 the world be blown up by by an asteroid it's you know it, it it's satire this but it's it's how do you have trust how do you increase trust in a more libertarian place you know, how do you stop fake news it is mm. an extraordinary debate
2: are you both hooked on twitter james are you somebody who's sort of mindlessly scrolling the whole time
3: I, I try very hard not to because I, because I do think I do think you notice if you spend too long on Twitter on a day, it does begin to kind of affect how you how you think. Um, so so I, so I try not to. Yeah,
2: um, I,
0: yeah I find it, I get I get very bored with it after a while. And I do find it maybe it's the people I'm following the wrong people, but I find it so relentlessly right on sometimes.
2: Mm well, another story which we'll turn to um, just finally is um, in terms of like the sort of real world pressures that, that continue uh, away from the the Twitter sphere and away from what the prime minister is concerning himself with with uh, with Partygate and the rest. And um, we had the news yesterday about um, ambulance waiting times. Most stroke and heart, heart attack victims are now waiting for more than an hour for an ambulance, according to some new NHS figures. Um, Melanie, how much does that concern you, and how? How risky do you think this is for the government? On top of everything else, that there might be people who, you know, either themselves or know somebody very close to them, who might have a dreadful experience recently with with the health service.
0: It, it's, I mean, it's it's awful, isn't it? I, I mean, it's very close to home for me. My carer had a heart attack um, just just about seven weeks ago. Oh gosh, and, I'm sorry. Yeah, but she's fine now. She had a stent fitted. She's fine. But the the, the, the the ambulance came almost immediately, and um, she was she was whisked. They did an ECG, and she was whisked off to the cardiac um, specialist place. And they put they had a stent waiting to put in. But that was you know we are a little pocket of excellence uh, in in that regard. We're very lucky. But it, I I drive through hospitals three times a day at the moment, and the lines of ambulances waiting for. For you know they 're stacking up every single bay in the, in the um, emergency in the emergency bays, mm. this will really really um, affect it 's another of those things at play, if you like, and I think uh, it, w- it will be a, a, something which which Boris Johnson needs to worry about very much with the health service because when it starts impacting people, when people see their relatives die of a heart attack because the ambulance didn 't come in time. That is is pretty lethal politically. And
2: James, we know from again from from some different figures which were released yesterday and some analysis from yesterday is that this isn't necessarily because of uh, an overwhelming wave of people now presenting to the health service after keeping away from the pandemic. The numbers on that front don't seem to be the things that are driving this. It is NHS capacity, which still is just not up to its full potential yet.
3: Yeah, and I think I think Melanie is right that the the danger for the government is that this begins to really affect people's lives. I mean, if you look at that those figures that suggest that the uh, NHS waiting lists don't begin to come down at all, mm. so they carry on rising until kind of spring summer of 2024, which is you know about when the. When the Tories will want to go for a general election, because you know they have to go for one before December 2024, I, I think this is very difficult. I think if you end up in a situation where you know t- one in ten people in England are on an NHS waiting list, that is that is a very very difficult political situation for the government. And I think that I think the truth in a way is you know covid has hit the nhs really hard and it and you know it, it had its difficulties before but writing itself now and trying to create extra capacity which is what it needs it, it is is just very 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 difficult for it and i mean this is i think this is a real problem and the problem is when it starts showing you things like ambulance waiting times that that is when you know it, that that begins to have you know not not to be obvious and cliches but you know that begins to have life and death impacts you know as melanie was saying about her, her poor carer
2: was Melanie Reed and James Forsyth, our columnists. Up next, Navalny.
0: Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once.
2: It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any
0: occasion. BlueNile.com
4: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Geeky Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm, hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started
0: planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more
2: And now it's time for this, the people who uncovered Alexei Navalny's poisoners. A new film, Navalny, follows the efforts of Alexei to recover and return to Russia, whilst also publicly calling out the Russian government employees who tried to kill him. When you come to a room of a comatose
5: patient, you start doing you just telling him the news, telling him his story. Alexei, don't worry. You were poisoned,
2: there was a murder attempt, Putin tried to kill you with Novichok. And he opened his, like, blue eyes, wide and looked at me
5: and said very clear, come on, poisoned? I don't believe it. Like, he's back. This is Alexei.
2: Putin's supposed to be not so stupid to
5: use this Novichok. His wording, his expletive his intonation if you want to kill someone just shoot him jesus christ like real Alexei.
2: i've been speaking to daniel raw who directed the film
1: so often making documentary films is the art of being in the right place at the right time and and this was one of these funny cases where we were working on a completely different film i was working with a bulgarian data journalist named Christo grozev who heads this investigative outlet called bellingcat Cat is well known for using data to solve crimes. Um, every time you turn on your phone or use a computer or send an email or book a doctor's appointment or a train ticket, There is a digital breadcrumb that's left somewhere in the world. For most of the Western world, there are privacy laws that means the phone companies and the Uber, whatever it is, has to protect your information. This is something that's contested and important and discussed in the West. But in a place like Russia, there's no consideration for digital privacy. And so the country is so corrupt that you can buy people's personal data and information. And that's what Christo does. And so when Christo came to me and said that he was working on the Navalny case... I immediately understood that he was an individual who Navalny might take seriously. His professional experience being with Bellingcat solving specifically Russian state poisonings was immediately fascinating. And it was via Christo Gros at Bellingcat that we were able to get an introduction to Alexei, meet him for the first time, And I I then had to convince him why a film was a good idea.
2: And this was after Navalny had been poisoned and he was through the other side of the coma and Christo had contacted Navalny saying, I know who poisoned you. That was where you were at that time. You were in the thick of those conversations.
1: That's correct. Alexei had woken up, I think, three or four weeks earlier from his coma. We didn't know what state he was in. We knew that he was recovering. He had made a few media appearances. But it was very much Christo who was able to say, I think I have a lead. I think I have a good idea of who put this operation together. And for Alexei, who has a very strong investigative team in his own right, he was all ears. The Navalny camp is well known for investigating corruption, white collar crime, Mm. bribery and embezzlement, these sorts of things. But when it comes to state-sponsored assassination attempts and poisonings, that was more in Christo's niche wheelhouse. And so that's why Alexei was so keen to meet with Christo, and it just so happened that Christo came with this documentary crew.
2: And um, when you say Christo was, was contacting Navalny saying, I've, I've got some idea of, of who killed you, it's way more than that, isn't it? He, with quite alarming accuracy, knew quite a bit about the people who, it was clear, must have had something to do with the attempt on Navalny's life.
1: Well, it needs to be remembered that when Christo reached out to Navalny for the first time, he had a broad stroke sense of who the the key players were, who the bosses of the operation were. But it was while we were filming that the weeds sort of untangled and, and sort of this web of wasps that Christo discovered really came to light. But when the original approach was made, it was really just, I think we have a lead into the general structure of the assassination campaign, of the men who tried to kill you. And it was only weeks later, uh, as they were putting the final touches on the investigation, that the true depth and insidiousness of this plot was revealed to Grozev, Navalny's camp, and their collaborators at Spiegel, CNN, and El Paso.
2: And you, and, and your team capturing all and of this for a documentary. That's
1: right. That's right.
2: And sitting in that room as they were uncovering all of this and keeping a public lid on it, because as you say, they were also working with CNN and the Spiegel to actually properly publish this once they'd got all their ducks in a row. You were there in the room at the time with your cameras rolling as they were making these quite shocking uncoveries, discoveries. What was going through your head as you were there just pointing a camera at this?
1: Well, this is going to sound kind of funny to your listeners, I'm sure. But when we started filming, I had no idea what was going on. I just knew it was amazing. Like, Christo every day is hunched over his laptop looking at spreadsheets and, that are in Cyrillic, they're in Russian. I have no idea what he's actually doing. At this point, my understanding of the illicit black market of Russian information, of Russian data, was very cursory. Like, I didn't really get it. It was only weeks later that I sort of doubled back and really understood the fine points of what Christo was doing as he uncovered this murder program. But, of course, our cameras were running because I knew Christo was an extraordinary character. And Navalny was one of the most extraordinary and compelling characters of all time. You know, he's, I think, going to be remembered as one of the compelling men of the 21st century. And his bravery is extraordinary. His courage is extraordinary. And he just looks the part of a movie star. Like, he is so photogenic and charismatic. There's like a kind
2: Cary Grant look about him.
1: Absolutely. You know, people have said that he's, you know, he's got this movie star quality. And... That's kind of a, a remarkable thing in and of itself. You have this cast in a non-fiction film, but they all look like movie stars. It's like, you know, kind of <laughs> and, awesome.
2: And one of the most dramatic parts of the film is where, again, all of this investigation is largely done, that they're on the cusp of hitting publish and telling their partners at CNN and the Spiegel to, to do the same and, and get this story, the story of who actually tried to kill Alexei Navalny out there. But before they do that, while your cameras are rolling, they telephone some of the people who they think did it with quite extraordinary outcomes.
1: Yeah, it was insane. I remember speaking to Christo the night before we recorded that scene. We shot it and we recorded those phone calls. And I said, Christo, come on, what are the odds that we're gonna get anything here? And he said, you know, north of one percent. These guys are trained spies. They're not just gonna spill the beans. But lo and behold, That's exactly what happened. And every now and then, maybe once or twice in a lucky documentarian's life, they capture something so groundbreaking, jaw-dropping, extraordinary. And that's what we shot that day. I don't speak a word of Russian. You have to be mindful of the fact that I didn't know what Alexei and Maria and Christo were talking about on the phone. But you didn't actually have to speak a word of Russian to understand that something truly remarkable was happening. You know, the way that their, their, their jaws just unhinged and hit the floor it was mm. it was stunning to be in the room to witness it
2: what did you make of, of navalny as as a documentary subject you, you you mentioned already his incredible life story the incredible work he does the fact that he's so incredibly photogenic as well and yeah. yet he has got a complicated past and part of the film is is an interview with him and you do go into that did you sense him bristling were you worried about kicking yourself out of out of the access that you had by pushing too far
1: well it's a good question and it's a very fine line because on one hand i need the access my work is predicated on the access it's the art of access and the art of being there but on the other hand i'm sensitive to the fact that we have you know human being you know you have to manage a human resource and you don't want to to upset him and certainly there are elements of the story that are challenging and difficult and that he doesn't like talking about but here's a man who is a politician who is seeking the presidency. Ultimately, that's his goal, is to become the president <clears throat> of, a, of a gigantic country. And so he has an obligation to sit there and, and answer annoying questions. That's what his job is. And so it was very easy for me to, to understand that and to take him to task on some of the complexities of his past and his political philosophy. And at the end of the day, I, I ultimately, I think Alexei respected the integrity of my approach, my unwillingness to to just be a wet blanket when he would Mm. give me an answer I didn't like. I'm very keen to push him, uh, to challenge him, and to try and get something that is more substantial.
2: A lot of this, of course, played out in in Germany where he was convalescing after he was poisoned. He then famously returned to Russia where he remains incarcerated. Tell me about his his journey back and, and your vantage point on it.
1: That was one of the most stressful days of my life. This man who I cared about. I wouldn't say that we were friends, but I certainly cared about him going back into the lion's den. He's walking back into the unknown. We didn't know if he would be shot at the airport. We didn't know if he'd be hauled off the plane. We didn't know if they'd let him go sleep in his own bed. And it was that unknowingness, the stress and drama of that moment that felt very real. It was really unsettling and very nerve-wracking when Alexei and Yulia were returning home.
2: And, of course, eventually he was taken into custody. At one point, it's talked about in the film, well, he jokes about the fact that you're hoovering up all this material because you want to make a film for when he dies and at the end of your story. I wonder what your concerns are about him at the moment and the likelihood of of his theory coming to pass.
1: Alexei's not in a good spot. Navalny's in peril. The man is in the same custody of the men who tried to murder him in August of 2020. The regime has gone off the rails. They are waging this apocalyptic, senseless war in Ukraine. And it would be a good moment to finish the work they tried to do in August of 2020. There's a media blackout domestically. The world's eyes are fixated on Kiev. And the way that we keep Alexei alive and the way that we keep him safe is by keeping the name Alexei Navalny in the headlines. That's the prerogative, is to make him one of the most famous names on the planet, make sure everyone knows the name Navalny is synonymous with political repression, political prisoner, to show this film to the world, to introduce the world to him and his family, and people can better understand the motivations for his plight. And the more space Alexei occupies in the global consciousness, the harder it will be for the regime to murder him. That's our calculus, and that's the hope that we have to cling to, that if we can continue to share this story and keep his name in the headlines, he will be safer.
2: Daniel, good to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time. And best of luck with the film.
1: Appreciate you, Lou. Take care.
2: That's Daniel Raw, director of the new film Navalny, which is available on demand and in cinemas across the UK from today. And it is well worth a watch. That scene I described where they um, actually have the numbers of all the people who poisoned him and they, on camera, called them. And you hear these Russian, you know, FSB and chemical science people pick up, and actually they and they sort of you know pretend to be a Russian official in the Valny side, and ask them about oh why did the poisoning go badly? And they actually go well we think for this reason, this reason, this reason. It is mind blowing. So um, definitely worth a watch. Of course. Um, Alexei Navalny came to political prominence because he was, first of all, protesting Russian corruption. He founded the Anti-Corruption Foundation in 2011. We've been speaking to his colleague and friend, Vladimir Ashurkov. He was uh, writing in the Times Redbox the other day about an overlooked method of Russian corruption and... It's to do with the UK courts and the litigation cases that they bring here by Russian state actors. I spoke to him a little bit earlier on and asked him what could be done about that, but first asked him about what he understood to be the latest situation with Alexei's condition in prison.
5: He has been incarcerated since January 2021, so it's approaching a year and a half. He was just given an additional nine-year sentence a month ago. We keep communication with him through a lawyer who is allowed to visit him for about an hour a day, and he scribbles his handwritten notes to his team, to his family and he reads the materials that we sent to him so that he keeps current on the events in Russia and in the world despite quite harsh conditions in uh, the Russian prison he keeps his spirits high and he uses his ability to communicate from through through the lawyer during this trial to convey his uh, anti-war messages and anti anti-putin messages that he he is so
2: famous for. Yeah, and of course, many people will be frustrated looking at the situation he finds himself in and uh, the miscarriage of justice—the way justice is being misused in Russia to keep him behind bars because he's a, a difficult character for Vladimir Putin. You've been writing in in the Times Red Box um, about what Russia is doing in that regard, not just within Russia itself, but also around the world itself.
5: Sure. This uh, Russian unprovoked and brutal aggression in Ukraine puts in question all aspects of relationship between Russia and the civilized world. And there have been extensive economic sanctions against Russia. There have been an avalanche of sanctions against people involved in corruption and human rights abuse. Another aspect of these relations is the legal profession. It's no secret that the UK and London High Court in particular is a place where billions of dollars are disputed in litigation related to Russia, because in many cases it's concluded according to English law. Mm. And uh, in my article in the Times, I argue that since Russia has brutally Redrawn its its laws, and the uh, international community can no longer rely on Russia implementing whatever decisions of, of international courts. I think it's a it's a question of suspending all litigation related to Russian state and uh, Russian state companies, state agencies that are currently conducted in in England, because.
2: In terms of what the Russians have done on the Russian side as well, it takes in some strange examples of where they have run roughshod over international rules. I mean, we're even talking about the law relating to airplane leases, pepper Pig copyright.
5: Right. It's um, basically the illustration of this is that a Russian, uh, like a production studio, they wanted to use Peppa Pig images for some merchandise, I believe. Mm. And the copyright owner brought a lawsuit against them in Russia. And Russian court said just UK is a hostile state. You can't really enforce the copyright law now in Russia. So that's maybe a small, but it's an example of Mm. how Russia is not a place where you can expect rule of law. And at the same time, if the Russian parties win in UK court, you can expect that uh, these decisions will be enforced in the UK and throughout the world. So this asymmetry should, I think, give force to Russia-related litigation.
2: And so, just finally then, what do you think actually should and and could be done, especially on the UK side, if they are running Russia over international agreements and if they are using the British courts to do things which are maybe untoward, maybe that we don't want to be a part of, how can we actually boot this out of our system and try and clamp down on it when there is so much money to be made for, for the legal profession?
5: I don't think I have a a simple question to this complicated issue. There are many aspects Mm -hmm. of it. But in the situation as we find ourselves now, if a decision against a Russian state-related party cannot be enforced in Russia, and at the same time, if this Russian party wins in the UK, this decision will be enforced in the UK Mm -hmm and the Western world as it is bound by the rule of law, the legal professionals need to look at this situation and to find out the right answer. In my opinion, it's suspension of all ongoing litigation with Russian state actors and no uh, initiation of new litigation in this respect. And this can only change when the regime in Russia changes and Russia resumes its way towards you know the the normal civilization where yeah. rule of law yeah. is indisputable.
2: Vladimir Shukov, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. That's Vladimir Shukov, a former executive director of the Anti-Corruption Foundation, the outfit founded by Alexei Navalny. Let's um, speak to Andrei Soldatov, who is a senior fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis and author of The Compatriots, who is live with us. Andrei, welcome.
6: Uh, hello, good morning.
2: Uh, thanks very much for your time. Um, it's been described somewhere as a as an almost Stalinist mass purge of uh, Russian intelligence. Is that really what's under underway?
6: Well, it is uh well, far from Stalin purges because back then thousands and thousands of people were It's, uh, it's getting close to that, uh, especially' news about the um, uh, cardinal general of the FSB. Uh, actually, he's one of the most important generals uh, of the service uh, who was first uh, placed under house arrest. Now he was uh, transferred to the infamous prison of Lefortovo, which is known for really harsh conditions and uh, people who are held there were held completely incommunicado. And it's getting a bit more dramatic right now. We just got news that a prison warden, who is himself an FSB officer, was replaced. Uh, which uh, seems to be a reflection of uh, how the Russian government is getting desperate to contain information about what is going on with uh, the FSB.
2: And in part of your reporting about this, you've pointed out that a lot of this is happening within the FSB's so-called Fifth Service. Can you just explain for us what that is and why President Putin is so upset with them at the moment?
6: Well, the FIPS service is a very interesting department of the FSB. Uh, Officially, the FSB is a domestic uh, agency, just like MI5 in the UK. But uh, when Vladimir Putin was uh, director of the service back in the late 1990s, uh, he created a new department uh, to spy specifically in the former Soviet Union and that is uh, that was the moment when uh, the FIPS service was born. Initially, it was a very tiny uh, directorate, but it became bigger and bigger, especially after the so-called color revolutions started happening on the territory of the former Soviet Union in Ukraine, in Georgia, and that triggered paranoia uh, of Vladimir Putin. So these days, the FIPS service is not only, say, the foreign intelligence branch of the FSB, it's also uh, a political department which is uh, charged to keep uh, these uh, former parts of the mm. Soviet Union closer to, to the Kremlin and uh, stay them in the sphere of influence of the Kremlin.
2: We were just hearing a few moments ago on the program about the. Um... Russian blunders over the poisoning of Alexei Navalny and how many of the people involved with that were able to be unmasked by by Bellingcat. And of course, we've also had the, the Salisbury poisoning, which was quite an embarrassing moment for Russian intelligence as, as well. Now this war in Ukraine. Um, should we leave all of this concluding that actually Russian intelligence, uh, government intelligence, military intelligence is not up to the job?
6: Well, yes. And now lots of people in Moscow are asking themselves uh, this very question uh, about the government and the Kremlin invested so much in the Russian security services. They provided them with a regime of immunity from, say, prosecution if they found corrupt. They were given enormous resources, a lot of money, a high level health, well, say, prestige in the society. And nevertheless, they failed Vladimir Putin many, many times. Unfortunately, uh it prompted him to uh rely more on the military and partly what we see right now in Ukraine is uh is a result of this uh new drive that the military now are trusted more than the FSB
2: how do you think this is going to play out as the war in Ukraine plays out andre do you think this is going to we're going to see more fsb um agents behind bars and out of jobs or do you think that this has done the trick in terms of um both purging useless people and also scaring uh, everyone who remains?
6: Well, now these days I'm, I'm getting lots of calls from the, uh, from my contacts in the military and it is absolutely clear that they feel very excited that now they see the FSB people being under attack. So it looks like we already see some sort of split between the military and the FSB and everybody tries to find a uh, home to blame and the military uh, decided to blame the FSB. How it might go, it's not really clear, but what we see from the FSB side that they responded to these purges by starting uh, this uh, campaign against traitors and spies in the country. So unfortunately, we can see more repressions domestically, more repression in the country.
2: And in terms of the situation within the country and the repression that you mentioned there, do you think this is going to get... A lot worse for the people of Russia, and do you think that actually this is the the new normal? This isn't just Russia on a war footing. Um, how life is turning in within Russia itself is going to be around for a long time, at least for the rest of the the reign of, of Vladimir Putin.
6: Uh, well, yes, unfortunately, the picture right now is quite dark, and they see uh, we see that uh, the security services they. Uh, provoke and probe people in the country to denounce each other. And we see a list of allegations and we see new legislation to attack people who express their anti-war sentiments. Uh, We see these new developments that, for instance, if a soldier uh, refused to go to Ukraine, he got a special stamp on his uh, military document, uh, which basically says that he is prone to treason. And it is very Stalinist.
2: Mm. Thanks so much for your time this morning, Andrei Soldatov, senior fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis, author of *The Compatriots*, uh, taking us inside what's happening inside uh, the FSB and uh, the Russian military there as the the war continues to not be going to uh, to plan for them. Uh, and after, as we were just discussing there, many blunders, not least with of what happened with Alexei Navalny and and how he was um, not quite killed, even though that's what they were planning. And that's all we've got time for on the podcast. Thanks very much for your time. Do subscribe if you like it. I'm on Twitter, at LukeJones03. Um, I'll be back on Monday. Matt will be back uh, with a fresh tan next week.
4: Hold up.